I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, I think all of us probably remember waking up this last summer on June 12th to the news about the mass shooting at the gay nightclub called Pulse in Orlando, Florida. You know, I distinctly remember hearing the news commentators referring to it almost immediately as the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. 49 people were murdered that night. And among the many people who responded was the LGBT liaison for the Orlando Police Department, Lieutenant James Young. He's here with us tonight to share his own story and experience and to talk about how the department and the city of Orlando are recovering. And in the second half of our hour, we're going back to school with Campus Pride's Executive Director, Shane Winmeyer. He's back to talk about the worst colleges for LGBT students and to give us an update on North Carolina's House Bill 2. We'll have all of this and much more coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 25th, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Face-to-face Executive Director Rick Dean said this year's Art for Life event raised $70,000 for HIV prevention and care services programs. He said, quote, I send sincere appreciation to our event sponsors, art buyers, and of course, to the generous Sonoma County art community who contributed inspired works of art to the full collection. If you were not able to attend this year's auction, you have a second chance to bid on beautiful art from local artists like Don Aiello, Bradford Brenner, Monica Bryant, Andrea Cleal, Green Greenwald, Bronca Harris, Melissa Stone, and others. The auction's available online through September 30th, and you can learn more at f2f.org. And also here locally, Sonoma County supervisors have selected an out lesbian from within their own ranks to be the next county administrator, taking over for Veronica Ferguson, who will step down in October. Cheryl Bratton, the assistant county counsel and a 24-year county employee, is set to take the helm of Sonoma County, including a workforce of 4,100 employees in what amounts to her first executive post. Supervisor Efren Carrillo, the board chairman, said Bratton has overseen a range of complex issues and projects as a county attorney, including deals connected to the county landfill, the former community hospital on Sinead Road, and financing for the Sonoma Marin Area Rail Transit Line. Bratton, who's 53, was among three finalists for the post. Carrillo said there were two other applicants from outside Sonoma County. Bratton's primary responsibility will be oversight of the county's workforce and the county's $1.66 billion budget. On Wednesday, Bratton called the county, quote, a high-performing organization and said she looks forward to her new role working with elected officials and an awesome group of employees. She said, I really want to build on the collaborative culture of this organization. Bratton said she hopes to leave the organization even at a higher performing level and to make a positive impact on the community by carrying out the board's priorities. Leaders in county government praised her work, including Sonoma County District Attorney Jill Ravitch, who said, quote, Bratton brings a new perspective to the position and she will enhance the work we do here at the county. She added, I think it's a terrific selection and I look forward to working with her. Bratton joined the county council's office as a deputy attorney in 1992. Previously, she worked as a lawyer with the San Francisco-based law firm Morrison & Forster, where she specialized in land use, real estate, and business law. Her undergraduate degree is from UC Berkeley in urban planning, and her law degree is from the University of San Francisco. 
She also holds a master's degree in business administration from USF. Now here's your calendar events for the coming week. On Monday, September 26th, Positive Images Sonoma General LGBTQQI meeting will take place at the Sonoma Community Center, 276 East Street in Sonoma. And also on Monday at 7 p.m., the Parents of Trans Youth Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. And also on Tuesday at 7 p.m., the Napa PFLAG meeting will take place at the Wolf Center, 2310 First Street in Napa. I'll be there talking about hate crimes and safety within the LGBT community. Everyone's welcome to join us for this important conversation. And on Wednesday, September 28th, starting at 12 noon, the Petaluma LGBT support group will happen at Casa Grande High School in Petaluma. This is a group for people 12 to 18 years of age. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Tonight, we had a crime that will have a lasting effect on our community. We need to stand strong. We need to be supportive of the victims and their families. I'm going to ask Chief Mina to explain what happened. Good morning. So at approximately 0202 hours this morning, uh, we had an officer working at Pulse Nightclub who responded to shots fired. Our officer uh, engaged in a gun battle with that suspect. Uh, the suspect at some point went back in inside the club where more shots were fired. This did turn into a hostage situation. Uh, from there, uh, obviously, multiple officers from various agencies responded. Uh, SWAT team responded uh, at approximately uh, 0500 this mor- 0500 hours this morning. Uh, the decision was made to rescue hostages that were in there. Our SWAT officers exchanged gunfire with the suspect. The suspect is dead. He appeared to be carrying a. Uh, rifle, assault-type rifle, and a handgun, uh, and had some type of device on him. Uh, that's what we're doing right now, uh, checking uh, the area for devices. There are multiple people that are dead inside. I don't want to give anyone a number right now, but multiple people are dead inside uh, Pulse Nightclub, uh, and at least 42 people have been transported uh, to various hospitals around, so do not have an exact count. Uh, Obviously, our condolences go out to the friends and family. That was the mayor of Orlando, Florida, Buddy Dyer, and Orlando's police chief, John Mina. One of the people called to the Pulse Bar immediately after the shooting began was Lieutenant James Young. He's a field commander for the Orlando Police Department and their LGBT community liaison. Lieutenant Young, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. Well, before we talk about the Pulse Bar and the horrible shooting that occurred there, tell us a little bit about yourself and your law enforcement background. Um, I've been in law enforcement since 1990. I left for about a year to uh, continue an education in law, uh, but decided actually law enforcement was the place for me to be. Uh, so I started here in uh, Orlando in 1997. Um, I've worked my way up. I've been fortunate to be promoted uh, to the rank of lieutenant. Uh, worked a lot of different divisions over my career, and uh, coming up on 20 years here, plus seven from a previous agency, 
and uh, also four years in the military before that. So uh, public service for a very long time, and, uh, and I still love it every day. Wow, that's quite an impressive career already. And I know another one of your assignments, of the many, uh, is that you are the LGBT liaison officer between the department and the LGBT community. Talk a little bit about your experience with that. Um, for years, uh, I, I've been an out officer for years, uh, and I kind of want to thank all those people, people like you, uh, who came before me in this, you know, in our country, uh, helping the law enforcement community. Uh, you know, your your uh, books uh, coming up from Beyond the Bad series, uh, things like that, uh, really inspired me to be who I am. Oh, thank to you. Be honest about myself, so I appreciate your help with that. Um, Unofficially, I was kind of the liaison just because I think so many people knew me here in Orlando for multiple years and that I was so involved in the community along with the LGBT community. Um, also, I work closely with uh, uh, one of our uh, out commissioners, mm-hmm. uh, Commissioner Patty Sheehan. I've uh, worked uh, closely with her office for many years. Uh, so it was kind of an unofficial liaison position until a few years ago. Um, our mayor, Mayor Buddy Dyer, and our chief of police, Chief John Mina, uh, the support they have put uh, within the LGBT community has been tremendous um, and uh, wanted to make it an official position. So one of my many roles here at the Orlando Police Department is uh, the LGBT liaison position. And since then, I've also uh, uh, have a lot of other officers uh, who have been there to help us um, work as liaisons to the community. So it's been a great experience, and the gay community here uh, in Orlando um, has been tremendous to work with. Our, our leaders in the uh, gay and lesbian community have been tremendous support uh, for the police and us for them as well. That's really great. So would you say that the relationship with the community and the police has gotten better because of the LGBT liaison position? Um, it's um, you know, obviously we know societal changes uh, and mm-hmm. things have changed. Um, uh, you know, Florida did not have uh, legalized um, same-sex marriage until uh, January of last year. Uh, and so things have changed uh, society-wise. Um, we've always had a decent relationship with our uh, gay and lesbian community, but uh, it's definitely improved uh, over the last several years. It's improved. Um, and uh, that having the liaison and that experience um, and just being involved, I, and I, I say involved, but I say more immersed into the LGBT community mm-hmm. here in Orlando uh, from a law enforcement position, um, educating our fellow law enforcement officers here in Central Florida about LGBT issues, um, having policies in place uh, here at the Orlando Police Department that uh, deal with um, interactions with transgender persons um, have really, really, really improved uh, our relationships with the LGBT community. Fantastic. And I'm sure all of that really came into play on that morning of June 12th when the call came in about the shooting at the Pulse Bar. Take us back to that morning and talk about your role in the initial response. Um, I had... one of my roles is also uh, as an event commander for a lot of our major events. So I was an event commander the evening before that Saturday night um, at uh, one of our venues here in Orlando. Uh, I left there around 1230 in the morning, um, 
went home, basically grabbed a quick late dinner <laughs> that evening, or and or I should say early in the morning because it was around one in the morning by the time I got home, um, and then went to bed uh, probably around one thirty. It was shortly after two a.m. Uh, when my phone rang um, and uh, got the call. A quick brief, um, you know, and in that first thirty minutes of sleep, kind of woke up with. I can't believe what's happening uh, type thing. Um, a lot of things, you know, went through my mind. A lot of our um, LGBT bars, I'm very close with the owners. I'm very close with the community. So I know um, I'm very familiar with a lot of the clubs right. um, and their layouts and everything else. So immediately I kind of went into work mode um, and uh, woke up and started getting dressed uh, to head into the scene. Uh, one is my role as the deputy team commander for our crisis negotiation team. Um, and, you know, and then also just as a police officer responding. So that's how I heard about it. That's where I started. So my initial role was as the deputy team commander for our crisis negotiation team, which is our hostage negotiation team. And, uh, responded in that role. Um, one of my other roles uh, is the commander over our um, canine units and arson and bomb uh, units and um, listening to the radio as I was getting dressed and responding, um, there was a need for those units to respond to. So I immediately started, began notifying those um, units to uh, start responding uh, for that incident. Um, so it took a lot of uh, you know, a lot was going on at once. Uh, I immediately began texting layouts of the club, things like that, to our teams that were already there um, on site and uh, and responded. Um, I don't live very far from the club, uh, within three miles, uh, so it didn't take me very long to get there to the scene. Well, I would imagine, like so many people, uh, for you, this was also a very personal event, uh, being so closely tied and involved in the community. It must have been very challenging to respond. Um, it, it was. Um, you know, I, I, I put myself uh, in that role of I know I have my job to do. Um, when I did arrive on scene, um, obviously there were still several people, um, you know, being rescued from the club. Uh, it was an active scene. Um, a, se- several of the uh, surviving people that work in the club immediately recognized me um, on a personal note, um, one of the main uh, performers there, uh, she immediately saw me. She ran up, gave me a hug um, as she came out of the club and, and was just, you know, oh, Jim, thank God you're there. And and I always said, you know, it's when someone knows you by your first name and, and knows and understands that police officers are human beings too. And you have that, like I said, immersed into the community. Um, it, I think it really just establishes that relationship we have um, and that we're people, too. We need to, you know, we're all one community. Um, you know, I, I love Orlando. I, I live in the downtown area. I, um, you know, I participate in a lot of events, and, and it did affect me on many levels. I said I've never had anything affect me on every level of my life, and I didn't think about this that evening. Obviously, I was in work mode, uh, but mm-hmm. um, on, on every level of, of my life, where normally uh, when tragedy or things happen, 
um, you know, in people's lives. It affects one area of their life. It might affect their work life. It may affect their, um, you know, their personal life. Um, but knowing um, and then later hearing the names of some of the victims who did not survive and as well as, well as knowing many of the victims um, who survived and may, were injured um, or who survived were in the club, uh, just knowing so many people um, affected me on a very personal level as well. Uh, so it, it, it is difficult, but, you know, my biggest thing, and, and you know in law enforcement, uh, most people, and I still truly believe this, most law enforcement officers are great people. Um, they truly do go into this job to help people. The interactions I have uh, with the community uh, helped out tremendously, not only that night, um, but in the weeks following and how the, uh, how the community here in Orlando really came together. Right, right. And we saw evidence of that coming in from across the country. I mean, the, the outpouring of support, I think, was really uh, commendable. But there was also a real sense of urgency, a real sense of fear around what could happen next. Uh, would there be a copycat? Uh, San Francisco Pride was just a couple of weeks away, I remember. And, you know, Tony and I were there for the entire weekend. And we witnessed a much greater level of security at all of the venues, bars, the parade, the festival, and so forth. How did the community of Orlando respond? Uh, what happened? What changes took place? Yeah, we, we saw the same thing here. Um, you know, we saw a lot of the businesses, um, although the business, you know, the businesses, a lot of our LGBT bars and stuff, as well as all of our bars um, and nightclubs here in Orlando, hire Orlando police officers, um, you know, to work at those clubs. In fact, that night at Pulse, we did have an officer working um, at the club. Uh, so, um, uh, but... Since then, um, or immediately after, we did see a lot of the businesses institute, um, you know, more like wanding or pat-downs as you enter clubs, uh, things along those lines. Um, you know, and I always said, it's, you know, we, 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 we love our freedoms, um, but with those freedoms sometimes come some security measures that um, a lot of the businesses were happy to take on, and you didn't see or at least I didn't see or hear anyone really, you know, complaining about those security mm -hmm. measures that were put into place. They were, they were, you know, felt more safe, uh, you know, with any security measures that are always in place. I know uh, years ago, like I said, I, I've worked to know a lot of the uh, club owners and things over the years as well as, you know, people working in the clubs and going to the clubs. And I know when I used to work uh, extra duty employment at a lot of the clubs, um, you know, the, the people were always like, oh, thank you for being here. You know, thank you for keeping us safe. So um, I, I think at least here in Orlando, we saw a big impact of, of how the community felt um, after that incident. Um, even, even since that incident and uh, the months following, um, as, uh, you know, there were other police-involved incidents around the country, um, so as uh, groups like Black Lives Matter, um, you know, they held, they held a demonstration here in Orlando. But what I was amazed about is to hear and see the stories of um, uh, so many of the Black Lives Matter protesters were coming up and shaking our officers' hands and hugging them and thanking them for being there and keeping them safe. Um, and they really appreciated everything we did to keep them safe. Um, and But... You know, we understand they have a right to protest and march, and we wanted to help keep them safe as well. Um, so 
it, it, it wasn't just the LGBT community, but I think all of our community saw um, our, you know, our police response and um, and the efforts uh, our officers did to save as many lives as possible during that incident, um, including risking their own lives to go into the club and save many lives. Um, and I think that had an impact on our community as a whole. And um, a lot of people have been extremely grateful ever since that day, um, not only here in Orlando, but from around the country and around the world. Tremendous. And, you know, I think sometimes people forget that first responders also become victims in these kinds of tragedies as well. I mean, it has huge impact on everybody who responds, whether you're straight or whether you're gay. I recall your chief uh, making a statement that morning to the effect that witnessing this was the worst day of his law enforcement career. Talk about the department. Uh, how are the officers doing and how are people recovering? Yeah, um, as an agency, obviously, um, we know that, um, you know, things like I said, we have officers, and every officer is different, and uh, we respect that. Um, and, you know, we still have officers, uh, you know, uh, seeking uh, mental health treatment and things along those lines and counseling. Um, our, our department has been extremely, extremely uh, supportive of all of the officers, um, as well as those in the community. Um, the city had, you know, immediately um, set up a, uh, you know, a center um for victims and uh, assistance to the victims, and uh, that center uh, was busy every day, and that was open to anyone in the community that felt impacted by this uh, to provide services, whether it be counseling services. Um, a lot of uh, people felt that they needed that immediate assistance. Um, a lot of companies and corporations um, from around the world um, and here in the U.S., uh, donated a lot of things, um, such as airline miles, um, gift cards, things that uh, people that were immediately impacted needed. Um, so the work between, you know, the agencies, um, the city as a whole, our, our, our actual city government, um, as well as our county government, um, worked very well together to try to ensure um, that everyone received the assistance they needed immediately. So what's your estimation on how the first responders are doing today? Yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, most are doing okay. Most have come back to work. Uh, we have a few that are still struggling. Um, and that's, you know, uh, part of the, the, the human part of us, I guess. Um, and, you know, and we understand that everyone recovers at a different, you know, different pace. Um, and... But everyone's doing okay, I guess, uh, you know, after such a, a tragic incident. Um, and, and moving forward, our, I, you know, our mayor, you know, continually uses, you know, the, the, the praise that, you know, this, this incident's not going to define us. It's not going to define Orlando, um, you know, but our, how we came together um, as Orlando United, um, and that's the, you know, sign we see everywhere, um, you know, has that support. That Orlando United support, um, Orlando coming together, and around the world, the Orlando United signs we've seen from all over the world. Um, I said I had never, in a kind of an odd way, but um, I had never seen so many rainbow flags in my life or rainbow designs in my life um, all around the city um, and in more prominent places than we've ever seen. The billboards, the buildings lit up with rainbow colors, the, you know, 
yard signs in people's front yards, the rainbow flags hanging in people's front yards, all the businesses with rainbow flags. It was just a, a, a tremendous support for the for our community, and um, you know, and, and our hearts, obviously, as police officers. And we tend to do this as officers, is we do put other people first. And our hearts here at the Orlando Police Department, you know, from that day to this day and every day forward, um, our hearts and um, deepest sympathies go out to the victims, their families, um, and all the people that were there that night. Um, uh, you know, our support is always going to be there for them. Um, but officers feel the same way, that our support is going to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. I think it was remarkable. There was an amazing amount of support uh, from around the world, from all corners of the world, uh, for the victims and for the city of Orlando. Talk about some of the lessons learned. You know, another lesson we've seen, and we've been fortunate here in Orlando, like I said, we do so many programs in our communities and all of our communities. Um, uh, you know, the uh, to, to make sure that prior to something happening, anything happening, um, that you develop those community relationships. And, and it takes years. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It's years of developing relationships with all of your communities, um, your minority communities, um, the LGBT community, um, because when something happens, when everyone knows that we're all, before it happens, everyone already knows that we're all on the same side and we're all there to help each other. And I think those years of established relationships um, really got us through this, and really so many people understood immediately that that the police aren't the enemy. The police are there to help you. I mean, the, the stories of our officers just rushing in there um, and just, you know, pulling people out, pulling victims out, um, um, putting them in the back of their pickup trucks and taking them to the hospital, um, you know, the, those stories and the videos everyone has seen, um, just just tremendous work and that our officers understand that people are human beings and they're there to help everyone and that the community understands that we are part of them. We live in their neighborhoods. We, you know, we're not just there to write them a ticket when they speed and we're not just there to arrest, you know, mm-hmm. we're there for all of it. And um, I think... We've been very fortunate here in Orlando to have some progressive leadership uh, that understands um, these issues. Um, our chief has uh, taken many of the steps in the President's Council on 21st Century Policing. Uh, we've implemented a lot of those programs over the past several years, um, as well as um, our department is the first in the nation to begin to post things, um, our transparency has increased with our community to post issues such as officer-involved shootings um, for many years, just to begin to post that stuff online, available to the public at any time, um, so that everyone gets the information correct the first time and that uh, we don't have problems boil over because the information is not available. Yeah, you're right. That's absolutely so important. You know, I still get asked from time to time from agencies large and small, even here in California, about why an LGBT liaison position is so important. From someone who is one and who saw firsthand the benefits of having an LGBT liaison position, talk to those departments. Tell them why it's important. Uh, I think the biggest importance is, one, like we said, those lessons learned. Um, the community has someone 
that they feel they can talk to. Um, we all know how society kind of works. If you know there's someone you can reach out to when you need something, um, it makes you feel more comfortable. And a lot of that has to do, uh, going back years, is, is people contacting me when they're afraid to go to the police because maybe something happened. Um, but they'll call me, and then I'll walk them through the process, or I'll assist them through the process, or I'll put them in touch with the right people. Um, the, the importance of the liaison position, just knowing and working with your leadership in the LGBT community as well, um, being there to assist them. Um, you know, we have... We have, we have our LGBT center here in Orlando. Um, I've been friends with the director uh, since he's been here, and uh, things have gone very well. Um, you know, every day after Pulse, uh, for those immediate several days, every day I would stop by the center. Um, they were assisting so many of the victims and people here in the community. Um, I'd stop by our, our Zebra Coalition, which helps LGBT youth. Um, being part of the LGBT liaison, too, uh, I help sit on as a law enforcement advisor to some of these locations that, such as like our Zebra Coalition, which helps LGBT youth here in our community um, so that they understand the law enforcement side of this and that law enforcement has those connections. So if our law enforcement comes across a homeless LGBT youth person, the resources, where to send them, um, you know, where to get them help uh, so that they don't end up, you know, on the wrong side of the law. Right, right. Well, one of many reasons that every single law enforcement agency should have an LGBT liaison officer, someone designated, to interact and connect with the local LGBT community. And what's really tragic here locally is that I'm not aware of any agency in Sonoma County that has that. So there's a challenge for those law enforcement agencies out there. We've been talking with Lieutenant James Young, a field commander and the LGBT liaison officer for the Orlando Police Department. Lieutenant Young, I just want to thank you from all of us here on the West Coast for everything you do every day, and in particular for what you did back on June 12th for all of the victims in the community in Orlando. Yeah, thank you, Greg. And I just want to thank again you um, and all the people who came before me um, with LGBT issues here, um, not just here in Orlando, but um, all, all across the globe, uh, LGBT uh, outreach between law enforcement and the community needs to continue, needs to grow. Um, it really, really, really makes a difference, and I appreciate everything you've done. And uh, once again, you know, my prayers and thoughts continue to this day and will always continue out to the victims and uh, those family members uh, from the uh, Pulse incident. I won't just survive Oh, you will see me thrive Can write my story I'm beyond the archetype I won't just conform No matter how you shake my core Cause my roots they run deep Oh, oh you have so little faith Don't doubt it, don't doubt it Victory is in my veins I know it, I know it And I will negotiate
You're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it's back to school time for almost all students, as well as the time when high school seniors begin to think about college. For LGBT students, the search for the right college involves a lot more than just finding the best academic programs. Here to share the latest about the best and worst colleges in the United States is the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, our good friend and colleague, Shane Winmeyer. Shane, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Craig. Campus Pride just put out a list of the worst colleges for LGBT students. Uh, I think you call it the list of shame? Well, it was the shame list, and uh, we this is the first year that we've actually done a worst uh, LGBT-friendly list, uh, kind of the absolute worst for LGBT students. So talk about the criteria. How does one make uh, a place on that esteemed list? Well, you know... It's important to know, I mean, Campus Pride, uh, this is our first time doing it. Uh, We had a long conversation uh, that has actually been over two years about, you know, we highlight the very best campuses that are LGBT inclusive and friendly, and and we've never really highlighted the worst campuses. And it it got to the point where um, in the last year and a half, there's such, you know, difficulty with these campuses applying for uh, Title IX exemptions to openly discriminate, um, you know, it got to our point from a a standpoint of inclusion that, you know, these campuses are the, you know, ultimate worst because they are trying to sanction discrimination through, you know, the law to say that they have a right to discriminate. And so we thought that they should be highlighted, you know, through for using their religious viewpoints as a way to, you know, to to perpetuate, kind of harmful rhetoric and beliefs that hurt um, young people who are LGBT. And so um, in order to be on the list, you you had to have uh, requested or received uh, a Title IX exemption that allows you uh, through, you know, legal uh, rights to openly discriminate in this country against a, a transgender or a LGB young person who wants to go to school on your campus. Um, you know, religious institutions have that right, but we thought it was important that everybody know that these are indeed campuses that will uh, discriminate against you if you're LGBT. And so that was one criteria. Uh, the other criteria could be that you have a demonstrated track record or past history of, um, you know, an LGBT policy uh, in your student code or a practice that has happened. So um, that was our criteria this year, and every year we'll uh, review and update the list. So for our listeners who are not familiar with Title IX, we've mentioned it before on the Outbeat News segment, uh, mostly involving stories of restrooms and access to restrooms. Tell us a little bit about Title IX and what that is and how that impacts colleges yeah, so I mean, Title IX is 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 one of those words that a lot of people have heard, but they don't really understand or know about. And at the end of the day, how Title IX applies to LGBT young people um, and campuses is that Title IX talks about access and equity around gender. Um, and in 2014, the Obama administration uh, basically clarified and uh, defined gender to include transgender and uh, kind of gender non-binary. Uh, you know, LGB as far as gender expression. Uh, and so uh, it, it basically said that LGBT young people are protected and campuses need to open up their campuses related to gender uh, for transgender students. So that includes, you know, like you mentioned, restroom usage, locker rooms, um, anything that deals with the educational setting uh, as far as access. Um, 
and being equitable uh, in that access. Um, and so Campus Pride, you know, that's that was a, a wonderful move on behalf of uh, the administration uh, to be inclusive of LGBT young people through Title IX. And, you know, before a campus could apply for a Title IX exemption, uh, and many campuses had done so, for instance, you know, some campuses, you know, that are religious, uh, you know, who consider themselves Christian-based campuses would often say that their Christianity forbid them from having someone who is, uh, you know, not celibate, uh, you know, who is uh, not married. So in order to have sex on their campus or have relationships uh, that were sexual, you had to be married. And so if a student was found to be pregnant um, and not married, then that student could be kicked off campus. And so campuses would apply uh, who were religious-based uh, for Title IX exemptions to allow their campus to kick a student off who was pregnant and unwed. Um, and so that had happened prior to uh, 2014, but in 2014, um, largely because of transgender uh, issues being more at the forefront of, you know, our society, um, you know, we saw more religious institutions basically say that they, they want to openly uh, kick out or discriminate against transgender uh, or other LGBT young people simply for their gender identity or gender expression or for who they are. And so that's kind of a, in a nutshell uh, about Title IX and Campus Pride said, you know what, if you're going to openly discriminate and use Title IX as a legal framework to do so, then we want to tell every campus, uh, every young person that's looking for a campus, exactly what you're doing. And if you're not going to put it on your admission brochure, then we'll make sure that they know about it. Sure. And I'm looking at the list right now, and you know there are many uh, universities in the South, uh, but they're not all in the South. In fact, there's a couple here I see right in California, Azusa Pacific which is a religious institution, and then also Biola University in La Mirada. Here's another one in Riverside. Uh, it's not just something that's limited to the South. It really is all over the U.S. Well, people are actually very surprised. First of all, they're shocked that there are still that there are campuses that openly discriminate against an LGBT young person. Like People are just in shock that you know, in this day and age, somebody who is transgender or gay can simply be told that they can't have access to housing on campus or are treated or discriminated against uh, on on a campus, period, regardless of whether it be, you know, a religious campus. Um, there are many, you know, faith-affirming campuses out there. And so these 102 campuses uh, are, are not LGBT-friendly and are actually the absolute worst, as we call them, related to discriminatory practices. Um, and about 20 of them exist in California. So, I mean, that's, what, one-fifth uh, of the, one-tenth of the entire list is right there based in, in California, roughly. Or 20%, sorry. It's crazy, 102. Uh, we'll have that whole list that you can take a look at. There'll be a link on our website at outbeatnews.com. And you can take a look at the uh, shameless. This would be particularly important if you're beginning to search for a college to go to uh, next year. These are the campuses to avoid if you're LGBT. I mean, Campus Pride through our Campus Index has over 250 campuses that are LGBT inclusive that you should really look at. And, you know, we should be applauding the campuses that are LGBT inclusive because by, you know, by and large, I mean, that's the future uh, is one of inclusion 
uh, especially in higher education. No campus should be openly discriminated against uh, anyone for any reason. Right, and that is a really good point. There are a number of campuses that have made you know some real strides to be inclusive of LGBT students and actually have done a lot of outreach uh, through Campus Pride, through your recruitment uh, fairs and so forth. Talk a little bit about the Campus Climate Index and how a student can go and search for that LGBT-friendly and inclusive place. Yeah, um, so on our website at campuspride.org, um, you can actually get to the Campus Pride Index. It looks at LGBT inclusive climate issues when it comes to policies, programs, and practices. And like I said, there's hundreds of campuses out there that are very affirming to LGBTQ students that are of faith, as well as, you know, campuses that, you know, are public institutions or private institutions that are not religiously affiliated. So, you know, a lot of attention has been given to the shame list of the absolutely worst campuses, but there are so many more campuses that really get it and understand that LGBT young people are a part of the diverse uh, kind of inclusive approach that they want as far as their educational experience. And so go to campuspride.org. Um, you can search the database, which has over 250 campuses uh, currently. And every day there are more and more campuses that are joining uh, the Campus Pride Index. Um, we recently uh, updated the index, so uh, it is growing uh, quite rapidly. Um, and so, you know, definitely check that out. We also have college fairs uh, where these colleges recruit and they actually go out and recruit LGBT young people to go to school along with um, allies. Uh, anyone can attend. Um, one of them is in Los Angeles uh, at the end of October. Uh, we also have another um, in Vancouver, Washington uh, here um, coming up, like I said, in, in October. Uh, we have one in New York City. Um, we just finished a fair in Charlotte. So you should check those out. They're online, again, at campuspride.org. You can find them along the top bar. It says college fairs. Fantastic. Well, one of the stories we've been following that really seems to be at the center of the whole restroom issue, and I know Campus Pride's been very actively involved in opposing North Carolina's House Bill 2. Give us an update on that. Uh, maybe start out by telling us how it all came about and then what's happening with it now. Well, I mean, it all came about through our um, city of Charlotte um, city commission, uh, some of our leaders wanting to be inclusive. Uh, they wanted to be a world-class city. Uh, they wanted to attract um, businesses that, you know, are fair-minded and uh, treat LGBT uh, citizens as, you know, uh, as deserving. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it was all a very inclusive effort. And uh, the first time it came up with the city council, um, there were enough votes to pass it, but um, uh, so there were some scare tactics, frankly, that people put in place who were opposed to it around, you know, trans people using restrooms. And uh, it, it shouldn't have surprised uh, the organizations who were leading it, but um, there was nothing to prepare uh, on this short notice, uh, the scare tactics when it came to phone calls to the city council. And so um, there was a move to take out trans people from the public accommodation protect protections. And uh, some of the city commissioners said, or city council members said, no, we're not going to leave trans people behind. And so it failed the first time it came up to the city council. Um, it, there was then an, an election that happened. And we, um, the LGBTQ community here in Charlotte, um, elected a city council and a, and a mayor that um, basically, um, you know, as part of their platform said that they will pass it. And so they did pass it um, and they had some conversations. There were some dialogues uh, that occurred um, around 
uh, kind of educating people about, um, uh, you know, the bathroom issue, as people call it, um, which in reality is not an issue at all because trans people have been using, you know, bathrooms that match their gender identity, you know, forever. And so, um, you know, we passed it. The city of Charlotte passed it. It was an inclusive measure. Um, it passed, uh, you know, pretty easily uh, as far as a majority of votes. And uh, then what we had was a governor who, um, you know, said immediately after it was passed and even before it was passed that there might be repercussions for the city of Charlotte if they dare pass this intrusive ordinance, as they put it. Um, and uh, the governor and the state legislators basically uh, convened a private session uh, within 30 days, bef uh, a day before I believe it was going to be implemented, um, to to stop it from happening. And uh, they spent, I think, roughly $40,000 in taxpayer money just to have a special session to keep the city of Charlotte from uh, you know, passing this inclusive measure, which had been passed in many other cities across the country. Um, and it was a waste of taxpayer dollars. It's now cost the, the state as well as the city of Charlotte millions of dollars. Um, and it continues to have a, a, a horrible economic impact uh, with businesses that are refusing to come to North Carolina, with concerts, uh, entertainers, uh, anything economically has had a, uh, you know, a devastating uh, you know, blow to our, our local Charlotte economy, but also the state economy. So it's really been bad for business um, for many reasons and, and harmful. The rhetoric has been truly harmful to our trans uh, citizens and, you know, people who, uh, you know, are non-binary uh, in our community. Wow. And, and the NBA was also one of those groups who pulled the All-Star game from Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah, they sure did. Um, and that obviously got a lot of attention. But the governor um, has been very, um, you know, very much uh, kind of dug in their heels and, uh, you know, very stubborn uh, and, and I would say stupid in their uh, lack of uh understanding about how this is truly hurting uh, the economic uh, future of Charlotte as well as the state of North Carolina. Um, and so, I mean, we have an election coming up in November, and, and what we've been trying to do is mobilize people uh, to get out there and elect people who, you know, stand for inclusion, uh, who stand for, um, you know, making sure that whether it be trans people or, or anyone, uh, that we don't allow discrimination to happen. Right, right. Well, that vote is going to be so, so important. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is bathrooms are really clearly at the center of this, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a, a transgender college student, maybe in the process of coming out, maybe in the in the, some stage of transition, you know, feeling and seeing all of this animus really towards them uh, and all of the unwarranted fears. And yet, uh, I have to say, at my college, at Napa College, I've seen more visible transgender students than ever before. Are you seeing that across the country too? Are students really kind of standing up despite this? Well, most definitely. I think, I think there is, uh, especially on college campuses, there is trans visibility that has never been uh, kind of at this point before. I mean, it's still largely in uh, progressive places or in large urban places as far as campuses, but there are definitely many more trans young people who are coming out uh, non-binary young people who are trans who are speaking out and sharing their story um, and what we find I mean with any uh, 
you know, any issue of civil rights is that the more, um, you know, visibility, the more, uh, you know, people uh, sharing their story and speaking out, um, you know, they face more adversity and more hate and more bias and prejudice. And so um, it, it is a awful reality. And it's very concerning when you consider that, you know, trans young people, particularly trans youth of color, uh, trans women are, you know, at high rates of, uh, of uh, murder, of, of harassment, of discrimination. Um, and so Campus Pride is very attuned to that. And we try to provide as much support services as we can. And I know there's many other organizations that are doing great work to make sure that you know, trans young people have the support that they need right now because it's a very difficult time uh, to be trans and young and particularly a young person of color. For sure. But I really have to applaud the courage uh, that I've seen. I mean, these are really some remarkable young people. You know, it's an important part of who they are, and, but it still requires a tremendous amount of courage to be that visible. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the Campus Pride Leadership Camp. Uh, this was a milestone year for you. For our listeners who are not familiar with this annual leadership camp, tell us about it and why this year was more important. Well, I mean, you just mentioned the courage. I mean, we have every year we have probably the most brave leaders come together um, at Camp Pride, which is our five-day, five-night um, social justice and leadership academy that you know we we had um, this year at UNC Charlotte. Um, and I mean, these are brave, uh, amazing young adult leaders who are, you know, already skilled, but who come together and create an action plan to take back to their campus on how to create more change in their community uh, amongst their um, their peers, as well as amongst their administration or in their local um, city or, or township. Um, and so <laughs> it's by far one of our most, uh, you know, phenomenal programs that Campus Pride does. It was our 10-year anniversary, so we've been doing this program for a decade now, and wow. we've seen so many young people, you know, continue on to, you know, to get out in the workforce, to get, you know, to get out uh, in their communities, and and they carry on the Campus Pride, you know, message and what they learned, um, you know, at Camp Pride, you know, as you know full-fledged uh, community members out there uh, doing work. Um, we have one young person who uh, is very involved in the Air Force and is out and, you know, an amazing leader in the Air Force. We have another young person who, uh, you know, her dream was always to to help um, at a clinic with, um, you know, uh, in vitro fertilization and being a, a doctor to help uh, lesbian women and, and other uh, LGBTQ parents um and so she now you know is involved in and has her own practice at a clinic and so there's just so many wonderful stories of young people who have went through you know this social justice uh, camp uh, that we call camp pride and um they're very brave uh young people and every year we get such a diversity of um of students that we have yet to see in the movement and it's so encouraging so where does these students typically come from? Are they primarily from the East Coast, or do you see them coming from across the country? Well, I mean, this year was a little bit unique. You, you had brought up HB2 um, and House Bill 2 earlier, um, you know, in our conversation. And, and hosting the—we're based in Charlotte, North Carolina, so we host the camp where we're, we call home, and that being Charlotte. And so we did see some challenges around some young people uh, not choosing to want to come to the state of North Carolina— uh -huh. You know their own concerns of safety, which we totally understood. Um, but you know our camp still had over about a hundred uh, young people uh, who attended, 
Um, and, you know, they come from all over the place, uh, Texas, California, um, you know, uh, Seattle, Washington, um, Utah, uh, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, um, you know, and of course the Northeast and uh, the South is very well represented. Um, we have scholarships for some young people, which if you have any um, listeners who want to help a young person go to camp, uh, particularly from campuses that don't have resources to send students, uh, such as maybe a historically black college or a rural campus where there may not be as much uh, support for an LGBT, um, particularly a transgender young person, they can go online to Campus Pride and designate uh, when they make a donation to help support camp. So that's always a great thing. Fantastic. Who are some of the speakers that were at camp this year? Yeah, well, Mara Kiesling is one of our veteran speakers and educators. Uh, Mara is the um, executive director of the National Center for Trans Equality and uh, has been coming to camp I believe almost nine years now, so is a longstanding uh, educator. Uh, we have what we call um, edutainers, uh, people who entertain as well as educate. And we had, um, you know, Jay Mays, who is a, a out trans uh, spoken word artist. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jay Mays has been coming for a number of years. Um, we have Randy Driscoll, who both of us know very much. The amazing Randy Driscoll. <laughs> the amazing, exactly. So Randy Driscoll, who has been coming um, every year of camp, um, except for one where she decided to have a baby, which uh, is totally understandable. She didn't want to have the baby at camp. Um, but she came this year and was one of our focal points at our 10-year anniversary celebration. Uh, we had Mandy Carter, who is uh, an amazing uh, person in and of herself uh, with, you know, as a civil rights champion going back, I believe, almost 50 years uh, doing work in the South and around uh, civil rights and, you know, LGBT rights, uh, racial justice work, uh, the founder of the National Black Justice Coalition, uh, Southerners on New Ground, uh, one of the founders there. And so, um, you know, obviously we have our our faculty team, which are experts who come from different campuses who are part of it. We also have peer educators, young people who are kind of like, uh, we call them pride leaders, but they're they're a peer, peer educator, a leader who helps with the content and the curriculum. So um, it's an amazing experience. And we had uh, two, um, you know, celebrities come this year um, uh, who were there to receive some awards, along with Mandy Carter, as I mentioned, uh, Jessica, uh, Nicole, who is from um, Scandal, the TV show, mm-hmm. um, and Miss Lawrence, who is also from some fashion shows and the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Fantastic. What a wonderful opportunity for young people and such an important thing for our movement. Most definitely. I mean, it's one of those things, like I say, that, um, you know, we hope to carry on forever. I mean, as long as we need, you know, work around social justice and intersections of being LGBTQ, you know, the camp really provides that. It's kind of a family for many of these young people. Um, And the first time some of them coming from rural areas have actually found someone or are able to identify with a group of people who are are like them, which is so important in forming a healthy um, identity. It most definitely is. So the school year is well underway in just about every corner of the country. Talk about what's coming up for Campus Pride this year. Well, we just got through with an amazing back-to-school push around, uh, you know, welcoming young people back to campus, uh, sharing our top 30 LGBT-friendly list, and as you mentioned, the absolute worst list uh, called the shameless. So uh, that was huge for us. Um, 
you know, it's, it's received national attention pretty much uh, from every corner of the U.S. Um, as far as media. Um, so that's been a really good uh, push for back to school. Um, you know, our next focus here in September, October is our college fair program. Uh, like I said, we have about eight college fairs in all different parts of the country that we'll actually be hosting and going to. Um, we're also doing for the first time a job fair. So if you are a young person in college and you're looking for a job or a career, um, you know, particularly in, uh, we have some folks who are coming from uh, engineering, accounting backgrounds to our job fair uh, to recruit employees, uh, that's happening in Atlanta this year. And we'll be doing an online job fair as well as an online college fair. So those are some of the activities coming up. Um, you know, it's an exciting, you know, fall uh, for us because we're bringing on some new staff people too. So there's a lot of uh, new opportunities for people, you know, as far as paid uh, staffing here in our office. And of course, we always have room for interns and volunteers if any of your listeners are, are um, wanting to get involved. Fantastic. And where would someone go to learn more about Campus Pride and the job fair and the recruitment fairs and opportunities for internships? Well, it's pretty easy. Campuspride.org is our main site. And from that main site, you can actually uh, learn more about, um, you know, uh, whether it be the job fair or the college fair. Um, if you want to go to our new job board, it's campuspride.jobs. Um, and you can also go directly to the Campus Pride listing of, of LGBT-friendly campuses by going to campusprideindex.org. So, but I just encourage everyone, the most simple thing is to go to campuspride.org and just check out what you're interested in and email us if you have any questions. And you can also follow Campus Pride on Facebook and Twitter as well. Yeah, no, and I mean, there's just so much to do. I mean, along the top bar of our website, campuspride.org, you can learn about our, our Safe Space program, our Out in Greek uh, fraternity and sorority initiatives, um, like I said, the job fair. There's just so much there, so take some time to do that. Great. So whether you're a teacher or a student, you really should take the opportunity to get to know Campus Pride because there's not another organization like it supporting colleges and universities in the country. We've been talking with Shane Winmeyer, who is the executive director and founder of Campus Pride. It's always a pleasure to have you go back to school with us. Thanks, Shane. Oh, for sure. Thank you, Greg. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to our guest tonight, Orlando Police Lieutenant James Young, and from Campus Pride, Shane Winmeyer. Remember, all of our shows are available for on-demand play anytime, and we have a brand new feature on our website that will notify you by email every time a new show is available for play. You can sign up right now at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutBeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.